some of you know that uh, almost exactly a year ago, um, I began to have uh, kidney failure. I've been a diabetic forever and uh, close to it. And uh, uh, I got very, very sick. Remember the hurricane blew through New York? It was that, that weekend. I, I got up, I tried to get up out of bed, and I was walking like this, you know. And I couldn't stand up straight. I was dizzy. I was vomiting every 30 minutes for about three days. And uh, I realized something was wrong. I took a blood test and found my kidneys basically had failed. Uh, well, the Lord preserved me through that, and that began a long journey. Uh, I was on dialysis for about four months. And, uh, and then they began to, actually back in December, they began to talk about a transplant, kidney transplant, which I had never considered or thought of. Uh, but I remember going to uh, the hospital to hear about what that meant. And uh, my daughter, my son, and your pastor immediately volunteered their kidneys. Uh, Edwin was willing to drop his off on the way to the office one day. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they probably took 18 vials of blood from you. You know, but it turned out Edwin's blood type and my blood type are different, so we weren't compatible, but... I, I appreciate his offer of sacrifice. Turned out my daughter uh, and son were in initially eliminated because Karen and I, my wife and I, are both diabetics. But Elena turned 30, and that meant that she, they reconsidered her. And so in May, I got my daughter's kidney. And... Uh, <laughs> and some of you, uh, Luisa and Claudio and Edwin and a number of you guys, remember about a year ago I weighed 260 pounds. <laughs> and I weigh about, uh, one. Uh, this morning I weighed what, 185 I think. So. But I remember uh, part of the process, I, I mentioned before, uh, uh, Karen, Elena, Aaron, my mom was here for Christmas and I went to Mount Sinai in Manhattan to find out about a transplant and all that would be required. And so we met for the whole morning with doctors and other people and whatever. And there was one thing that especially stuck in my mind. Uh, one of the doctors, the woman doctor, was explaining the procedure. And she mentioned just to her, which an incidental part of the surgery process, the kidney transplant process. But it stuck in my head. And uh, uh, she saw my look of shock when she told me what was going to happen. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, uh, you know, it's really not as bad as it sounds. If I, I want to describe it to you guys. Every man in this room would cringe if, I, if you heard what I was going to say or was thinking. But uh, I, I told her, well, sure it is. It's, just, it's a lot. It's very hard and difficult. Uh, I felt like saying, how would you know, lady, what it was going to be like? But uh, that was sort of in the back of my head all those months as I thought about it. There, there were weak moments when I actually considered not doing a transplant at all just for this one 30-second procedure. Um, but the Lord gave me victory over that, and I, I had peace about it. Then it came a month after my surgery, which was in May. In fact, this is the first time I've preached since my kidney transplant. So... <laughs> But it came time for that procedure, which I had dreaded it to, to happen. And it did happen. Karen was there for a whole, she wasn't quite holding my hand, but mentally she was. And then, I, then it was over. And I thought, you know, 
there was an enormous sense of relief and a rush of euphoria as this thing that I had thought about for months was now done, and I wouldn't have to think about it ever again. And I thought, you know, that's the way it is whenever you go through a hard time, isn't it? You've all been through struggles, all of us. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've been through hardship and trial. And when it's over, there's a great sense of relief and, and euphoria, right? But how long does that last? Maybe ten minutes, maybe a half hour. It might last for a day or maybe a week. But you know, eventually it begins to dawn in you, as it did me, well, wait, there's more. There's more to come. This isn't the last trial you're going to have. And every time we have a trial, brothers and sisters, it puts a fork in the road on our path. And we can go down one of two directions. There's some people who choose the path of struggle. And they, want, uh, they live a life uh, like a pinball machine. And they're the pinball. And they careen back and forth from crisis to crisis, from hardship to hardship. And they often get depressed and they get angry. Sometimes they get angry at God for what's happening. That's one path some Christians take when they hit a crisis. The other path is the path that's followed by the Apostle Paul. And I've written the scriptures in my notes. My eyes, as, as Edwin will tell you, my eyes aren't very good. So I've got to put the... You can probably read it better for where you are than I can here. And, and uh, I have to uh, make an excuse, too. I was in Denver and Chicago this week, and, and Louise was trying to track me down all over the country. And uh, she, I finally talked to her on Thursday. And I know she wanted the scriptures, so I don't, I don't know if the guy's got enough of it. But so let me read it to you. This is, this is uh, from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And this is the other path. One path in that fork is the path of struggle and crisis and depression. This is the other path, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And I'll be referring to several passages. So if you feel like standing when I, when I read the scriptures, that's certainly appropriate. If you don't, that's up to you. But I'll be reading several times, so it'll be like a, a game here. But uh, Philippians 4, 6 to 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything but in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you have God's peace this morning? That's the other path in that fork on the road. Do you have God's peace this morning? Are you focused on God's love, on God's compassion, and God's grace? I think that's what Paul meant. Uh, when he referred in another passage of Philippians about wanting to know Christ. You know, if anybody knew Christ intimately, apart from those that actually walked this earth with Jesus, it was the Apostle Paul. And here he is in Philippians. By the way, our text this morning is in Lamentations 3. But we're going to have a sort of a shadow text in the book of Philippians because so much of what we're going to look at in Lamentations is, uh, is underscored by some of the things Paul says in that letter to the Philippians. So if you turn to Philippians 3, keep your finger in, or, or Lamentations 3, keep your finger in Philippians. But uh, what Paul is talking about here, he's in prison, he's being persecuted, he's facing martyrdom, and here he still wants to know more about Jesus. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings being like him in his death. 
Is that your focus today, brother or sister? Are you focused on wanting to know Jesus better? That should be a lifelong occupation until we meet Jesus face to face. And so which side of that fork in the road are you pursuing? Are you, are you trapped in trial and struggle and hardship? Is that where your focus is and you feel like you're just going back and forth, careening this way and that way in the midst of crisis? Maybe you feel like the author of our text this morning, Jeremiah. You might uh, turn to Lamentations chapter 3. I know that's not a book we often look at, and there are reasons for that. But if you can look at the first third of your Bible, uh, towards the end of that first third, you'll probably find the book of Jeremiah, which is a very big book. And if you go to the end of Jeremiah, you'll find the book of Lamentations. And that's where we're going to look, at Lamentations chapter 3. And as you're finding that, let me just say that during this whole process, this whole last 12 months, my favorite hymn has been playing over and over and over again in my mind. And that's, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And hopefully you know what it is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. But one of the passages where that phrase is found is here in Lamentations chapter 3. And so I started reading once again this book of Lamentations. And I was stunned again, as I always am when I read Lamentations, by the depth of despair that we find here in the prophet Jeremiah, who is the author of this book. Uh, We see Jeremiah, first of all, is angry. Jeremiah is an angry man. He's angry at the way he's been treated by his his countrymen. He says, uh, for instance, in in Lamentations 3, verses 63 through 64... And then 66, look at them, Jeremiah says, sitting or standing, they mock me in their songs. Pay them back what they deserve, O Lord, for what their hands have done. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from the heavens of the Lord, from before the heavens of the Lord. Have you ever been tempted to do that? Have you ever thought so much of yourself or so little of somebody else that you actually wanted God to be the instrument of your vengeance or revenge? That's the way Jeremiah felt. He's angry. But ironically enough, he's also conflicted because in his anger at the same people, he's sorrowful that they're not repenting to the Lord. They're not turning from their sin. He says uh, in, in verse 48, Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. Jeremiah is angry at the people the way they've treated him, but he's also in great sorrow over their lack of repentance. And they don't want to turn back to God. They don't want to come back to him. And so he's confused. Jeremiah is confused as he's writing this book. And a great example of that is an incredible verse, verse 8 in Lamentations 3. Just look what it says. Even when I call out or cry for help, he, that is God, shuts out my prayers. Jeremiah is on the verge of utter despair here. And yet, right in the middle of his despair, right in the middle of this text, in the middle of chapter 3, really in the middle of the entire book, are just some incredibly majestic words about God. Look at uh, verses 21 through 26 of Lamentations chapter 3 and just Look at how wonderful these things are. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. That's where this hymn comes from. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. As I look at these wonderful words, I see two majestic things about God. And a third, equally majestic thing, but very hard thing for us to understand and grasp. And so I want to bring those to you this morning. I want to begin with the, uh, the wonderful, majestic things to prepare us for the hard things. And so if you would look back at verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. His compassions never fail. What is Jeremiah telling us? He's saying that God's compassions are infinite. God's compassions are infinite. I wonder if we really understand what we say when we talk about infinity. That's, a, that's an incredible thing about God. Everything about the Lord is infinite. It means simply this, that God's compassions are never less than they have always been. Think about that. God's compassions are never less than they have always been. You remember the hymn, uh, Amazing Grace? And the last verse, which apparently wasn't written by Isaac, uh, the, uh, John Newton, the author, but was written years after his death. But when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you remember that? What is the next phrase? We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's eternity, brothers and sisters. Something that goes on forever. And God's compassions are eternal. God's compassions are also infinite. That means that God's compassions not only have no end, they have no beginning. It is coextensive with God himself. And when we say God's compassions are infinite, they have always been. Well, that's beyond our ability to put our minds around, to wrap our minds around, to really grasp. But it is not an irrational statement. It is an incomprehensible statement when we say that God's compassions are infinite. Listen to the way Isaiah puts it. This is from Isaiah 40. Do you not know, have you not heard... The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no, no one can fathom. The Lord's love and compassion have no beginning. The Lord's love and compassion have no end. The Lord's love and compassion, brothers and sisters, are infinite. That's a majestic and wonderful thing about God. Don't you praise God for that, that his compassions are infinite? But you know, there's another thing I see here. Look at verses uh, uh, 23 and the beginning of verse 24. Here's another majestic and wonderful truth in these verses. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Not only are God's compassions infinite, brothers and sisters... God's compassions are unlimited. My access to God's compassions are unlimited. Your access to God's compassions are unlimited. God never rations our access to his compassion and love. He doesn't keep us on a meter that's running. 
where it runs low and runs out. It's always there. It can't be used up. God's compassions are infinite. Therefore, my access to God's compassions and your access to God's compassions are unlimited. That's what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 4.19, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Isn't it wonderful to know that God doesn't have a certain amount of compassion for you here, and when it's used up, it's gone. No. When they're new every morning, that means my access to the infinite compassions of God are unlimited. Some of you may know, uh, Edwin maybe, or, or a few of you, that the kidney surgery, transplant surgery, for Elaine and I, my daughter and I, was scheduled for May 15th which is sort of, uh, when I heard the schedule, the date sort of stuck in the back of my head because my dad happened to have died on May 15th. But um, so we went to the hospital in the middle of the night. You know, I don't know, it was 5 in the morning or something like that. The surgery was supposed to be at 7, I think. And, uh, and uh, so we got all the preps and everything. And Elaine and I were down just about ready to be wheeled into the operating room. And... Uh, about two or three days before, I had gotten some sort of insect bite on my eyelid. And so my left eye looked terrible. It was all red and swollen or whatever. And uh, obviously the surgeon saw that. And uh, maybe he wondered whether Karen had slugged me in the eye or something. But <laughs> it wasn't that. It was a spider or something had bitten me. But it looked pretty bad. And so the surgeon wanted an ophthalmologist right there in the pre-surgery, the pre-op place to look at it, and they looked at it, and he said, well, you know, uh, I'm going to wait a week. We'll postpone the transplant for a week. And it was interesting how that whole pre-op emptied out. You know, all the people getting their operations, different kinds were wheeled in, and all the doctors followed them, the nurses. There was almost nobody there, and I was sitting there almost by myself. Uh, and I thought for a second, you know, what about all those prayers? A lot of you are praying for us. People all across the country are praying for us. People in other countries are praying for us. Uh, in Denver this week, uh, I uh, talked to one of our ministry directors from Central America. He lives in Nicaragua. He said they were praying for us in Nicaragua. And I was thinking, what's going to happen? Is God going to forget? All these people are praying right now, <laughs> and the surgery is a week from now. Is God going to forget? Or maybe these prayers have a shelf life. You know, and they're going to run out by then. I, you know, for a moment I was really thinking about this. Cause I, all that prayer focused on that one moment and nothing was happening. I was going home. But, you know, I, I, as I reflected on this here, I recognized that God is our portion, brothers and sisters. And what, how big is that portion? It's infinite. And so what is my supply of God's compassions? Unlimited. They're unlimited. God doesn't forget. Uh, those prayers don't have a self-life. God knows all those things and his compassions are there constantly. God's compassions are infinite and God's compassions are unlimited. Those are two wonderful and majestic truths uh, about our Lord. But, you know, here's something else. Here's the third thing I want to share with you. There's something else that's just as majestic, but it's very hard for us. Look at... Uh, Verses 24 through 26 of Lamentations 3, and then an incredible verse, verse 37. 
I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. It is good to wait quietly. And then look at verse 37, an incredible verse, especially in our day. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? God's compassions, I see here, brothers and sisters, are not just infinite and unlimited. They are perfect. God's compassions are perfect. Well, you might say, what's so hard about that? That sounds pretty good to me. And it does. But what this means is God applies his compassions according to his will. That's sometimes a hard thing. God applies his compassions according to his will. Because truth be told, you and I sometimes want to be in charge of God's grace, don't we? We want to tell God what his love should look like. Have you ever been in a relationship uh, where the, you or the other person began to say what love should look like in that relationship? You know, if you love me, you wouldn't do that. If you do that, you must not love me. Or if, if you love me, you would do this, but you're not doing it. You must not love me. We do that with God, don't we? We say, Lord, if you love me, this is what you're going to do. And we try to determine what God's compassions look like. And that's why it's a hard thing, because all of us go through that. And yet God insists that it is his, his will that determines how he uses his compassions. We never, never direct God's will. We never set God's agenda, brothers and sisters, and we never keep God on our schedule. We have to yield to God's sovereignty because if we don't yield to God's sovereignty, we will be defeated by our own expectations. Are you being defeated by your expectations of telling what God should be like or should be doing? Because that will defeat you, brothers and sisters, if you don't yield to his sovereignty. There's an episode in the life of the Apostle Peter which makes this very clear. Uh, keep your fingers there, and one of your fingers should be in Philippians, the other in Lamentations. If you've got another finger, turn it to Mark chapter 8. This is uh, uh, a very interesting episode in the life of the Apostle Peter with Jesus. It happens just after the Transfiguration, which means that Peter, James, and John had just seen Jesus in all of his divine glory. And here now, Jesus takes this moment to speak to his disciples. This is from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. He, that is Jesus, then began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then look what happens. And Peter took him aside, that is, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Look what he tells him. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things, uh, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter rebukes Jesus. Why? 
Because Peter thinks he has a better idea than Jesus. Have you ever been there, brothers and sisters? Have you ever told God how he should act, as Peter does here? That's why we must trust God, brothers and sisters, because so often we rebuke God because we think we have a better idea than he does. We have to yield to God's sovereignty or we will be defeated by our expectations. We must trust God because who has perfect knowledge of God's will? God. Do you have perfect knowledge of God's will? No. Do I? No. We have the scriptures, and that's as clear as it gets. Sometimes we, God speaks to us and tries to clarify things, but we never have absolute perfect uh, understanding of his will. Only he does. Remember what it said in verse 37. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? What do we mean when we say, God heard my prayer and answered my prayer? Aren't we often saying... Well, I got what I want, so God must have heard what I prayed about. But what if you don't get what you want? You've been praying about something, and it doesn't happen. Does that mean that God didn't hear your prayer? No. No. What is happening there? God is saying no. God is not ignoring us. Jeremiah began to fall into the trap of thinking God was ignoring him. Look back at verse 8. Even when I call out or cry for help, God shuts out my prayer. Jeremiah needed to understand, as we do, that God very often says no. And that's what makes this a very hard truth. God sometimes says, that's the answer to my prayer, is no. The great biblical example of this, of course, is is, uh, King David. Uh, if I could uh, refer to a couple of verses from 2 Samuel 12, you know the story of David and Bathsheba and the adultery and the murder and the child born out of, well, born out of that uh, union and, and, and uh, the prophet Nathan tells David that his child is going to die. Look what happens. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying on the ground. On the seventh day, the child died. What did David do then? Then David got up from the ground after he had, uh, had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Scripture is full, brothers and sisters. Scripture is full of God telling some of his choicest servants no. I think of Moses and him pleading with God to let him into the promised land. He had led the people right there for 40 years and led them to the brink of the promised land. And he so desperately wanted to go in. He said, Lord, please let me in. But God had told him no. And finally, God says to Moses, in effect, tells Moses to shut up. He says, Moses, do not speak to me about this ever again. It is no, and it's finally no. And that is a hard thing, brothers and sisters. But whose will is perfect? God's will is perfect. And so God will sometimes God will sometimes say no to you and probably already has many times. All right? God will say no. That is an answer to my prayer sometimes. God will sometimes say no. We need to get out of the habit of saying that God answers our prayers only when the results coincide with what I want them to be. 
You know, sometimes we ought to have testimony times. I haven't encountered too many of these in churches. What are testimony times? Usually we're saying God said yes. God delivered me from this and whatever. God said yes. God said yes. God. Have we ever had testimony times when people stood up and shared when God said no? We need to do that. I'm serious because, you know, brother, people, think of new believers in the Lord. Maybe some of you here. What happens the first time God says no? You know, if you watch TV preachers or, or sometimes you get the impression that you come to Christ and you ask and it's just automatically happens. No, God is not a genie. God knows his will and his will is, not, is sometimes very different than my will and what I want. I learned that very strongly this, this year. There are things I wanted to happen that were not God's will. But when you accept God's sovereignty, brothers and sisters, and understand his will is perfect, his compassions are perfect, then we can, we can understand that's the best for us. You know, sometimes we make a lot of noise instead of waiting quietly for God. One of my favorite movies is The Wizard of Oz. And there's a character in The Wizard of Oz, the... Uh, the scarecrow, one of the characters, the scarecrow. And of course, he's really a scarecrow. He's got straw for a body and, and the like. But he's a very talkative. He, he doesn't have a brain, but he's very talkative. <laughs> and and uh, at, at, at one point, Dorothy asked him, Dorothy, the little girl, Judy Garland, the movie, uh, says, uh, you know, you don't have a brain. How could you talk? And the scarecrow thinks for a minute. He says, you know, I really don't know. But then he adds a great line. He says, but there are some people who don't have brains that do an awful lot of talking. And, and that's, that's very true. And sometimes there are Christians who are supposed to be waiting quietly for God and God's salvation who do an awful lot of uh, talking and make an awful lot of noise. Sometimes we complain loudly to God. We shout our demands at God. Sometimes we try to gang up on God by getting everybody else to shout the same thing at Him. As if we could somehow force God to do something contrary to his will. God's will is perfect, not mine or not yours. Remember that God does decree to do some things through prayer. And that's important for us to remember. God does decree to do some things through our prayers. And the uh, united prayers of God's people is a powerful thing when they coincide with God's will. You remember the passage we read earlier from Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And does God say, I will do what you want? He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will make your hearts and minds, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's will is the only perfect will. Not my will and not yours. And so let me ask you in conclusion here. Are you going through a hard time? If, you, uh, if you're not going through a hard time right now, you already have, or you will. And remember, there's more. This is just one. There's more. It doesn't end. I'm, I'll be 62 next month. And, uh, and I've gone through a, a lot of them, not quite as strong as this, this year has been. But I know there's more ahead. All of us have those ahead. Have you taken the, from that fork on the road, have you taken the path of the pinball lifestyle? And you feel like a pinball, and all you're doing is struggling, going from one hardship to the next, 
and then going through all your trials and tribulations, you begin to get angry. You get angry at other people. You get angry at the pastor. You get angry at God. And Jeremiah was there. He was angry at God. Or are you taking the other path, the path that's set out for us by Paul and Christ, who says that God's compassions are infinite? God's compassions are coextensive with who God is. They are part of who he is. There's no beginning and no end to his compassions. And because God's compassions are my portion, they are unlimited. I have unlimited access to God's compassions. But remember this, brothers and sisters, that God's compassions are also perfect. That means they are given according, always according to his will. And I need to be willing to accept whatever that will is, one way or the other. That's a sign of Christian maturity. When you begin to, as David did, when you begin to accept God's no as the best thing that could happen to you, then you know that you're growing in the Lord. And when you don't take pride in that, that's another sign. See how great I am because I've accepted God's no, no. It's understanding that we are simply the pots and pans that God uses. We're the vessels and that God exercises compassions the way he wills them to be exercised. May God help us all to learn that lesson.